The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, chapter 28 of our confession of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, this is the shortest chapter in the confession of faith, and these two issues then are, uh, are separated out in chapters 29 and 30. So chapter 29 is of baptism, and chapter 30 is of the Lord's Supper, but here we have a summary chapter on these two. So obviously, we're not going to be uh, looking at everything pertaining to these two ordinances uh, this morning. We'll deal with those more as we get to the following Uh, the follow-on chapters. So we have uh, two paragraphs, and that's it in this chapter. Paragraph one deals with the ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, and paragraph two, the administration of the ordinances. So as I mentioned, this is the first of three chapters explaining the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. And we have these two paragraphs Uh, dealing uh, primarily with sort of the preliminary ideas of um, how they're to be administered and what they are and why we do them. Uh, In chapter 28, there are two major differences between what we have here in the London Baptist Confession of Faith and uh, its comparison with the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration. The first is that our confession is remarkably concise compared to the other two. The Savoy and the Westminster Confession each contain uh, five nearly identical paragraphs. And the other difference is the use of the word ordinance in our confession as compared to the word sacrament in the Savoy and the Westminster. Now the reason for the change of the language is not particularly because uh, Baptists deny that baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments. We do believe that. But to strengthen the argument instead for the credo-baptist position on baptism. So ordinance instead of sacrament is used primarily because of the issue of baptism and our distinct differences with our paedo-baptist brethren. Jim Renahan notes that some have assumed that this choice entailed a rejection of sacrament and a preference for ordinance, thus establishing a Zwinglian trajectory in subsequent Baptist circles. This is a false deduction. Instead, since baptism and the supper are appointments of Jesus Christ in his new covenant, they must be defined by new covenant scriptures. It is important. Inappropriate to define a new covenant ordinance by a primary reference to the old covenant scripture. So, in other words, what's going on here is the change in language was intentional in order to locate baptism in the, and the Lord's Supper in the new covenant and to disassociate the two ordinances from old covenant practices. Now, if you're familiar with Paedo-Baptist uh, theology, and particularly among Reformed Paedo-Baptists, so primarily our Presbyterian brethren, they tie baptism to the old covenant or, or 
Old Testament uh, practice of circumcision. And they see continuity between circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant. And since uh, the, uh, the male children, newborn male children, were circumcised in the Old Covenant, therefore we uh, baptize them in the New Covenant. And so there's continuity that they see there. Well, as Baptists, we reject that and do not see continuity between circumcision and baptism. We believe baptism is... A, uh, as we perform it for disciples alone is a distinct new covenant practice. And so instead of associating with the language of the Westminster and our Pado baptist brethren, uh, it was simply changed from ordin- uh, to ordinance from sacrament. And again, not a rejection. Now, another Uh, Another important distinction perhaps, uh, and especially given the historical context of the confession of faith, is uh, of course many of you are familiar in the Roman Catholic Church that the word sacrament is taken to uh, a completely different level. There are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, um, all of them providing some level of, of salvific work for the person who Uh, utilizes them. And so there's a further distinction with that. So the term ordinance refers to an institution established by lawful authority. And ordinances once established are not to be varied by human mutability. It's established, obviously we understand it to be established by God, and we're going to look at that in a moment. And because they are established by God's authority, we don't have the right or the ability to change them, to practice them as we see fit. An ordinance in Reformed Protestant understanding is a divine institution. It's given to us by Christ and his apostles to the church, and so it must be observed. Among the particular Baptists, the use of the term ordinances accompanies all of the biblically prescribed elements of public worship. So when we talk about ordinance, most often we speak of the two ordinances of the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, but that doesn't exclude the other ordinances that we practice as well. So uh, that is everything Uh, in one sense, that we do in the church. But we do uh, use the word to refer specifically to these. So for the particular Baptist, ordinance refers to those practices of the church's worship that we have specifically delineated in the New Testament. And they must be practiced in the church and no others. And this refers us back to the chapter on uh, worship in the confession of faith and what we call the regulative principle of worship. That the the Bible itself tells us how to worship. What do we bring into our worship and what do we keep out? Well, we believe that we're only authorized as we gather for corporate worship to do that which the Lord has prescribed and nothing additional. We're not free to say, well, the Bible doesn't say we can't do this, so I guess we can. Well, the Bible doesn't say there's a lot of different things, and so you can imagine uh, sort of a free-for-all fiasco when you start uh, just adding all of your own ideas to worship. 
But we also believe that if the Lord commands that we do something in our corporate worship, that we must do it. We're not free to decide and pick and choose what we want to do and what we don't. And so these uh, are a part of that. The term sacrament has been utilized throughout the history of the church, and that can be simply uh, defined as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. That's how we as Protestants understand that. And so even though the Roman Catholic Church expanded and distorted the definition of sacrament, the Protestant reformers kept the term as to refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two sacraments or ordinances of the church, but also maintaining the belief that the sacraments are not efficacious in and of themselves. In other words, they don't provide anything that is working for our salvation. If you are baptized, the waters of baptism are, are not going to save you. Or if you take the Lord's Supper and you're unregenerate, you're not all of a sudden going to be regenerated. These are not elements that are utilized in order that one would be saved. We believe that they, apart from the proper administration of the word of God and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, are ineffective for the one who partakes of them in the sense that it's not going to bring them to a place of regeneration. John Calvin defines a sacrament as an external sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences his promises of goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith and we in our turn testify our piety towards him both before himself and before angels as well as men. We may also define more briefly by calling it a testimony of the divine favor toward us, confirmed by an external sign with a corresponding attestation of our faith toward him. So these are elements that God has given to us that we might express our faith before him, and that we might be reminded of his promises and his love toward us. Calvin concludes, the office of the sacraments differ not from the word of God. And this is to hold forth and offer Christ to us and in him the treasures of heavenly grace. They confer nothing and avail nothing if not received in faith, just as wine and oil or any other liquor however large the quantity which you pour out will run away and perish unless there be an open vessel to receive it. When the vessel is not open, though it may be sprinkled all over, it will nevertheless remain entirely empty. And so, of course, on this, Baptists agree. As we partake in these elements, as we utilize the ordinances, if they're not done in faith, then they are of no use or effect to the one partaking of them at all. So just a few more words on this issue of ordinance and sacrament. Uh, Throughout the writings of the particular Baptists, uh, ordinances are said to be the various elements of worship, as I mentioned, that are prescribed in the New Testament. 
while reference is also made to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I bring this up just to say, um, again, even though there's a change in language between our confession and other Reformed confessions, it's not because the Baptists rejected the language of sacraments. They wrote about it and they spoke about it often. Benjamin Keach, he's one of the primary authors of our Confession of Faith, he wrote that all persons have free liberty to assemble with the church and to partake of all ordinances save those which peculiarly belong to the church as the Lord's Supper, Holy Discipline, and Days of Prayer and Fasting. So these were only, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are only for those who are members of Christ's church, people who have been uh, admitted into the church of Christ by profession of faith, and uh, they have covenanted themselves with the body of Christ. But he also affirms that other public ordinances were open to any and all who might attend the worship of God. And so, just as we have here, think of our uh, days when we have baptism in the Lord's Supper, just like last uh, Lord's Day here. Everyone is free to attend. Everyone can come and hear the preaching of the word and participate in the singing of uh, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, But when it comes to the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are only for Christians. And the Bible actually offers warnings to those who would partake of them in an unworthy manner. In other words, partaking of them in a way that is not by faith. And of course, if you're not a believer, you don't have faith in Christ. And so to do so would be uh, to take them unworthily. And so um, Keach didn't refrain from using this term sacrament, though. He defined a church as a congregation among whom the word of God and sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institution. In fact, he wrote a catechism and he said, what are those gospel ordinances or sacraments which tend to confirm us in the faith? And he answers the Lord's Supper and baptism. So all of that to say, Uh, basically that these terms can be interchangeable, but there is a historical reason as to why uh, they used ordinance instead of sacrament. Um, I'll mention as well that uh, I I already made reference to the fact that uh, some look at this and assume it's because the particular Baptists were taking on what's considered a Zwinglian view of uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, so Ulrich Zwingli was uh, the one who uh, believed and wrote often about and many adopted his position on the Lord's Supper that it is nothing other than a, uh, an ordinance of remembrance. In other words, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, all we are doing in that is remembering the sacrifice of Christ. It's a memorial meal and nothing more. Well, the particular Baptists were not Zwinglians. They disassociated from that idea entirely um, and held uh, more closely to the view espoused by John Calvin. And it's what I explain when we do the Lord's Supper each month, that uh, yes, we are doing this in remembrance of Christ. Yes, it is a memorial. Uh, yes, we are remembering his, uh, his death on the cross, 
However, it is more than just a memorial. It is also, as the scriptures tell us, participating with Christ. In other words, we are communing with Christ and with his people, hence the name communion that's associated with the Lord's Supper. And in that, we believe that Christ is present spiritually in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Not physically, as you have in transubstantiation with the Roman Catholic Church, not physically in the way of the Lutherans called consubstantiation, but physically, spiritually. In other words, as we partake of these elements, we have spiritual union, participation with Christ. And in that, we receive the benefit of God's grace. It is a means of grace. It is a means by which God brings grace into the lives of his people. Now, chapters 29 and 30 will deal with those issues more specifically. However, just to say that they rejected the idea of Zwinglianism. We here at ABC, your elders, we reject the idea of Zwinglianism um, but we identify a distinct difference, nevertheless, with our paedobaptist brethren with regard to our understanding of baptism and the new covenant. All right. Paragraph one, ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. Confession says, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. So the first paragraph establishes that these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper were instituted by Christ. And as such, the church is perpetually bound to to their continuation. In other words, we have to continue to do these things until the Lord tells us otherwise. Now, what may not be obvious to modern readers is that the particular Baptists here were making a clear distinction about the nature of baptism. The particular Baptists agreed with the Pado-Baptists on the Lord's Supper. So, polemically, in terms of an argument, the major thrust here is oriented toward the issue of baptism. The point being made by the writers of our confession is that however one defines what baptism is and how it's to be administered, it is commanded by Christ and must be carried out in the manner in which he prescribed. And so what we understand, again, we'll get into this more in chapter 29, is that Jesus prescribed baptism to be of believers alone, those who have professed faith in Christ and to be done in a body of water in which one can be fully immersed based on not only the examples we have in the New Testament of Christ himself and others, but also on the word baptizo itself, which means to immerse instead of sprinkle or pour. Um, So, This paragraph was intended to say that Christ instituted it in this way, therefore we must do it in this way. And so the one who instituted the ordinance is the one to whom we owe obedience. Confession also says that these ordinances are of a positive and sovereign institution. 
A positive institution, or otherwise known as a positive command, is that which is not inherently moral. In other words, we know that the law of God is written on the heart of every man. We are, uh, we're reminded of that in Romans chapter 2. Paul tells us that all men everywhere have the law of God written on their hearts, and that is what speaks to our conscience. This is why uh, we can have a true sense that people know the difference between right and wrong, to use uh, more common uh, language there. However, because man suppresses that truth and unrighteousness, he acts out in sin. But it's not that man is ignorant of the law of God. The moral law is written on the hearts of man. When it comes to a positive institution, that is not written on the heart of man. It can only be received, it can only be understood by special revelation. For example, in our confession, chapter four and paragraph three, it says, besides the law written in their hearts, they, speaking of Adam and Eve, received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's a distinction being made here, right? First, it says the law written in their hearts. That is, we understand the 10 commandments. But it says they also received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the distinction is that we have the moral law written upon their hearts, but we also have something of positive institution. Don't do this. Don't eat of this tree. And so the distinction is an important one. However, we must not conclude that since the command is not generally revealed to all mankind, that it is therefore not binding and authoritative. In the same manner that all men are called to repent and believe in the gospel, right? That's, that's, not, of, uh, that, that's not of the moral law. It's not written on every man's heart that he would know through gener- general revelation that he's to believe on Christ. Hence, Paul telling us we need to send preachers into all the world to proclaim the gospel. Um, but it is of, of a positive institution that we call on men to repent and believe the gospel. And so we are obligated to, uh, to proclaim this truth. We're obligated to believe it even though it is not written explicitly on our hearts as the moral law. And in the same manner uh, of all of these things, we have to understand that the ordinances are of a sovereign institution because God himself has the right to command them even though they exist outside of what we call the light of nature. In other words, God is free in himself to command obedience to his will regardless of how it is revealed. And no man has uh, any ground to stand on to say, well, I just, I didn't know, right? Ignorance of God's command is not an excuse in order to escape the consequences of breaking God's command. So this is a positive and sovereign institution. All right. Also, confession tells us, it is appointed by the Lord Jesus. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver. 
Remember during his final Passover meal with the disciples prior to his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. We read about that in Luke chapter 22. Of course, the Apostle Paul, once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, gave the instructions with regard to how to uh, conduct the Lord's Supper in obedience to Christ's command, but also uh, in conjunction with what the Lord did on that final Passover meal. And so we have instructions in the scriptures on how to do this and what even what to say. Uh, If you go to a church that's receiving the Lord's Supper, you should generally hear the same sort of thing being said because it is what the Lord tells us to say, that we're remembering the truth of what uh, the scriptures have proclaimed and particularly what Jesus himself said as he served the disciples the first uh, Lord's Supper. And so Jesus instituted this. Baptism, of course, was appointed by Jesus just prior to his ascension in heaven And he commanded the apostles to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So prior to instituting this ordinance of baptism, the Lord Jesus reminded the apostles that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so he asserted that he has the right to give this command. And so uh, the Great Commission, we often think of as that which Jesus gave to the church in order for us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And that is absolutely true, and we must do that, and we must be very committed to fulfilling that. However, the part that is often neglected or not at least thought as often about is the other part of this command, to baptize them to make disciples and to baptize them. And we also have the method in which that is to be done, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Name, singular, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we're not baptizing in the name of the Son, like the uh, oneness, uh, it's really a heresy, oneness heresy would proclaim, Uh, but in the name of the Trinity, who is our God. And so uh, from there, we see that this then is to be continued. The confession emphasizes the church's responsibility to continue observing these ordinances to the end of the world. Again, Christ's command to baptize is tied to his command in the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the world, make disciples. But what we learn is that until all of God's elect are gathered and until the Lord returns in judgment, the church has the responsibility to to take the gospel to all nations and to baptize new disciples. As new disciples are made, they are to be baptized. And in this endeavor, the Lord promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. In like manner, after repeating the instructions uh, that the Lord gave regarding the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul, and you hear this often, he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And so there is coming a day, I hope you believe, I believe, the Bible teaches, when all of God's elect will be baptized and will be brought into the kingdom of heaven and when the church will feast together with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as you think of those two ordinances brought together in the church, we get, and like I, why I like to mention when we take the Lord's Supper, we get a, a small but a foretaste of that which we will experience for all eternity. That we gather with the church and we delight in the work of God and we bring glory to him. But uh, one day, all of God's people will be gathered together and it will no longer be us receiving in the midst of our sin and our need for repentance, receiving a piece of bread and a cup of wine, but rather we will be seated with our king forever and ever to feast forever and ever, free from sin and free from suffering and all that comes in this world. And so the Lord Jesus himself said, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so the Lord's Supper is a memorial feast, yes, as we participate with Christ, as he is spiritually present with us, and as we remember the great future eternal promise of what is to come. And so when the church is in the presence of Christ in glory, there will no longer be a need to partake of the elements because those elements are done how? And it's often written on the front of communion table in remembrance of him. Well, when we're in Christ's presence, we don't need to do anything in remembrance of him, right? Because we will be with him. And so we're no longer remembering, we are participating and enjoying and delighting in who he is and what he is as we dwell with him. Now, it is possible that one reason the confession emphasizes the perpetual observance of the ordinances is a response to the theology of the Quakers. Now, some of you have probably heard of the Quakers, and if you're from uh, other parts in the Northeast, you're probably more familiar with the Quakers, uh, often associated in part with the Amish or the Mennonites. There's, uh, there's a, a likeness to them, not exactly alike, but uh, many similarities, but they're also known as the Society of Friends. The movement of the Quakers emerged in the 1650s in England, and their founder was a man by the name of George Fox, and he lamented what he saw as a spiritual deadness in many of the churches. He looked around and he said, they gather for church, they go through the, the, the process of coming to church and singing and praying and hearing the preaching and reading of the word, but they're just spiritually dead. There's no life to it whatsoever. And sadly, there are many churches like that. You've probably uh, been to them before. And so, when he saw this deadness, he emphasized the importance of genuine spirituality that was to permeate the entire life of the believer. And to that we say yes and amen. Our Christianity is not isolated to Sundays when we gather for worship. 
our Christian life, our Christian faith is lived out in every aspect of our lives, every day, everywhere that we are. And, uh, you know, I wish we could all say uh, that every element of our lives is lived out by faith every day, um, but we are a people who still are dealing with indwelling sin and uh, the world and the flesh and the devil. And so this is what we desire. And so to that we say, yes, we're not just Sunday Christians. We are all day, every day, 24-7 believers in Christ. However, Fox's response to this spiritual deadness that he observed was to practice baptism and the Lord's Supper as a spiritual reality, but determined that they should not use physical elements or ceremony to symbolize this reality. He wrote of those who promoted the use of the elements of the Lord's Supper and said, they tell the people of a sacrament for which they have no scripture. But the supper of the Lord we own. The bread that we break is the communion of the body of Christ. The cup we drink is the communion of the blood of Christ, all made to drink into one spirit. Okay, so regarding baptism, they have a confession of faith, the Quakers do. Their confession states, we believe Christ's baptism to be the inward receiving of the promised Holy Spirit, whereby the believer is immersed in Jesus's power, purity, and wisdom. This baptism is the essential Christian baptism, an experience of cleansing from sin that supplants old covenant rituals. Now, no faithful Christian would deny that the ordinances must not ever become a substitute for truth and for living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the same Lord in whom believers have faith has commanded that his disciples be baptized physically and that they observe the Lord's Supper physically on a regular basis. And so the proper response to abuse of ordinances is not to forbid their practice. It's not to do away with them and just say, well, they're spiritual realities, so we only practice them spiritually, but rather to repent of lifeless ritual and to restore the ordinances to their proper place within the church. And so even among Protestants, however, you'll hear this argument sometimes that If you uh, say, if we were to receive the Lord's Supper every week that we gather, that if we do that, then it's just going to become a lifeless ritual. So we shouldn't do that. Well, that's really the same argument that Fox was making, right? We're saying, well, it becomes a ritual. My response to that would be, well, every week we pray, every week we sing, Every week we read the scriptures and hear the preaching of the word and gather as the church. So why do those not become lifeless rituals but the Lord's Supper does or baptism does? I think we would all delight if every single week we had so many people who needed to be baptized that we had to have baptisms. So why would we look at something like the Lord's Supper and say, well, if we do it too often, then it's just gonna become ritualistic. 
right? So we, we have to th- think through the institution and its benefit and its uses and not just cast it off and say uh, that it's in danger of becoming something that it's not intended to be. Everything is, right? Everything we do as a church is. Because the issues are heart, it's not the ordinances, it's not the elements themselves. And so we have to be very careful that we don't uh, make the arguments uh, that could easily be applied to every other thing that we do. All right, second paragraph, this one is very short. These holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. And so this paragraph identifies those within the church who are qualified and appointed to administer the ordinances. Since the ordinances are holy appointments, they are not to be administered without giving consideration to who is properly called to fulfill the responsibility. The confession states that those who are proper administrators are those who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. Now, unlike the Savoy and the Westminster, our confession stops short of explicitly identifying pastors or elders as the only qualified administrators of the elements. The confession in chapter 26, which we'll look at soon, in paragraph 11 refers, makes reference to gifted brothers who may also be called upon to perform various duties within the church. I'll give you uh, historical uh, background here. Jim Renahan writes of the practice of the particular Baptist explaining that the minimum requirement to be an acceptable administrator of baptism was recognition by the church as a gifted brother. Apparently, without exception, this was the opinion of the particular Baptist for the rest of the century. The Abingdon Association affirmed it in 1656, Broadmend, Bristol in 1679, Benjamin Keach, 1689, Southampton in 1691, the Bristol Association in 1693, and the Northern Association in 1701. Baptism was less important than preaching, and therefore those who were approved as preachers could be administrators. In most circumstances, it is expected that the pastors will be the ones who are administering the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper within the congregation to fulfill this important responsibility that they were called to do. They've been identified, they've been called by the church, they've been called by God, and that is a responsibility that's been given to them as a holy appointment. However, there may be instances when a pastor is unable to do so. For example, let's say a church only has one pastor who's not present on a particular Lord's Day, or a church has been constituted and they do not yet have a pastor, um, or... Uh, think of uh, what we've done with Bethlehem Baptist Fellowship. They're not constituted as a local church yet, but they are operating under the authority of Emmanuel Baptist Church as a local church. And so they don't, they don't have a pastor present with them. 
I have a, a church planter who we have identified as a gifted brother who's been sent out. And therefore, once we saw that they were going along well and understood these things, then we told Grant that you can now serve the Lord's Supper as a gifted brother. He's not yet been ordained as a pastor, but he's a gifted brother, and in those circumstances, it's appropriate that he would be able to do that. And so the particular Baptists make that distinction as opposed to our paedo-Baptist brethren. The Baptists thought it prudent to not withhold the ordinances from the church if a pastor was unable to administer them. And you could imagine in their historical context, these, these brothers were being persecuted severely because they were Baptists. And so there weren't a lot of pastors that were just freely available to go from church to church and, and d- uh, dispense the elements. And so they believed they were important enough as means of grace. They needed to be able to partake of them, uh, but that didn't always mean that a pastor was going to be present, although that is the norm. That is what we should hope for and expect, but there are times when it won't happen quite like that. Another error that this paragraph protects against is that of any kind of private administration of the ordinances. The ordinances belong to the church, and so they should not be practiced apart from the church. In other words, a father baptizing his child in the bathtub at home is not a proper baptism. Nor is it proper that a man serves the Lord's Supper to his family at the dining room table each evening. Another common error is with couples who want the Lord's Supper to be administered to them during a wedding ceremony. While weddings are often godly celebrations before the Lord and before his people, they are not proper settings for the administration of the elements. The Lord's Supper is an expression of the church's communion with Christ and with one another, and it's not a ritual to be performed in the midst of an extra-biblical ceremony, which a wedding is. And so it should be the normal practice of the church to administer the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism on the Lord's Day as the church gathers for corporate worship according to the commission of Christ. And so understandably, there is much confusion about these things, uh, but we believe and understand that these ordinances have been given to the church to be administered by the church for the people in the church. And if we understand that, we understand their proper place and uh, don't disassociate them from the corporate nature of these ordinances for the good of the body of Christ that gathers together in communion with Christ and with one another. That was perfect on time. <laughs> I might be five seconds over. <laughs> All right, well, hopefully that uh, is helpful to you. Uh, We will soon get into uh, chapters 29 and 30, which will deal um, individually with each of the ordinances in much greater detail. So uh, hold on tight, we'll get to those soon. Let's pray together. 
Lord, thank you again so much for this time that we've had together for the opportunity to study your word and uh, to look uh, to uh, this very helpful uh, gift that you've given to us in our confession of faith that helps us to understand the teaching of your word and its use in practice within the church. We pray, Lord, that you help us to observe these ordinances rightly, that they would honor you in their use in the church, that we would examine our own hearts, that they never become mere rituals of practice, uh, but that they are received by faith and that as that is done, that we receive them as a means of grace and we are brought along further in our faith to love and serve you all the more with our lives. And we pray you would do all of this for your glory and for the good and strengthening and building up of your church. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.